Welcome. Today is Wednesday, July 27th, and today we have a speaker for our meeting, Melissa C., who came to OA in 1993 and lives in the Hudson Valley area of New York, will be sharing her experience, strength, and hope. Thank you so much, Melissa. The floor is now yours. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much, Tricia. Thanks for everyone that's doing service. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York, like it stated. Um, and um, thanks. I'm, you know, I'm grateful to be invited to this meeting, and I'm grateful to be a person who um, qualifies for being, you know, a hundred pounder. I think there is, you know, although a meeting they said is open to everybody, there is a unique experience for those of us who have suffered um, a very visible consequence of our addiction. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a, a whole array of pains and experiences that people who've suffered in morbid obesity, that's, that's what it's called, it's called morbid obesity, um, have that others that, you know, don't have a different set of experiences. And although we're, we all are all welcome, there is something very specific about that experience. And I think it's actually, um, in a recovered state, it's actually a benefit. That's what I say, because um, it, it, allows, it allows me to um, carry a message of depth and weight because um, my, my transformation is not just internal, which is huge. What happened for me internally, the change, huge. But the fact that I actually get to wear a physical demonstration of a recovery, um, allows me to be helpful to more people. It does give some credibility, you know, um, to what I have to offer. So, and I always like to share, especially in meetings like this, where this is the focus, I always like to share my photos. Um, and I think why I like to share them is I've noticed that um, they're pretty impactful. You know, they're pretty, they're, they're pretty, uh, clear demonstration. And what happens generally after I share them is um, people lean in a little closer. They, they take what I have to say with just a little more seriousness of what I have to offer. So this is me, you know, this is what it looks like to be in the grip of this disease. This picture of me, I had just given birth to my daughter. I'm in the hospital. She's 21 today. So, um, and I remembered we were extremely happy over the moon to have this baby. And I had, you know, I had been suffering on and off all of my life in morbid obesity, up and down and up and down. And I really thought at this point, I remembered having so much hope in that picture that now I was going to start my life in a different way. Like I had this baby I loved happy marriage, all the things I ever wanted. And surely I was gonna be able to beat this food problem. And then if you look at the picture next to it, you know, my daughter got older, we're still happy, lots of love in our home, thank you God. But I got bigger, you know, having a baby and having what I wanted did not arrest this disease. And it continued that way. And most of the pictures that you'd find of me back in the day, I. Um, they were in restaurants, you know, at a table because food was my master. And when food is your master, the master tells you what you like to do. And so I thought what I really enjoyed doing was eating out. 
because eating out was an event that I could sit and eat and say that I was being social. Um, so we spent many, near, many meals like that. Um, and here's a photo, you know, of the red, in me in the red shirt, I was having a party in my house that day and I did not look like I was having a party. I could barely get a brush through my hair. The house was a mess, I was a mess, everything was a mess. And here's a picture of me on vacation, happy, smiling. I had been abstinent actually on this vacation. Um, but I picked up something on that vacation. And by the end of the vacation, I didn't, I wasn't wearing a smile. I was pretty miserable. Um, you know, my disease doesn't care where I'm at. It never takes a vacation and neither can my recovery. It comes with me, it's portable. Um, this is me with my sister and my sister-in-laws. I have a very big family, loud, overbearing, opinionated, loving, a full family. And I um, felt like there was always a wall separating me and the people who loved me. Because um, I showed up at family events um, with all the resentments and all the hurts and all the anger and everything I held on to some real, some imagined. Um, and they would go back to like when I was like a, a toddler, you know, everything that anybody ever did that pissed me off. And I showed up at those family events and I drank and I ate. I drank and I ate and, um, and felt very separate from the people who loved me. Um, this is me when, now this is my second living child. Um, and I, um, was really being like killed by this disease. He was extremely active. He came after a lot of loss and a lot of heartache and we wanted him desperately and I could barely enjoy him. I could hardly get my arms around him because the bulk of my body made it difficult to hold him. And that's a pain that normal sized people might never understand what that means to have a child that you love and adore and you're unable to hold that baby. And he was extremely active. I'm sure you could see from this picture, he's downing, he's looking how he's gonna get down. And that he was very, very active. And I could not keep up with this kid. And it broke my heart because I couldn't hold him and I couldn't chase him um, and I wanted him. And then here are two side-by-side -side photos. This was, again, my son, my husband's holding him there, we're at a, party. I think it must be New Year's because there's the, you know, the noisemaker. And this was, this leopard sweater was about the only thing that fit me at that point. Nothing fit me. And I was at my wit's end. Um, and then fast forward, that's me and my son and my husband. Um, uh, maybe four years ago, five years ago. Um, you know, I'm in a normal size body. Um, and here are two other side-by-side -side photos. This one here I like to show in the gray dress. I think what's really significant about this photo is I was still large, but I was recovered. I had been through the 12 steps. I was actually sponsoring in this size body. I was, um, my eyes are a glow. You can see there's something different in my face. My body hadn't caught up yet. And, you know, news alert, this is not a, program of diets. So it was not an overnight. The weight did not fly off overnight. It took time. But what I love about that event was I was, we were making a big, 
a fair for my daughter's bas mitzvah. And I was paying an arm and a leg for this huge catered affair. And I had my small, happy little abstinent plate. I could care less about the open bar. There was a room for dessert. I couldn't care less about it. But even more impactful was that wall that had separated me and my family for years was gone. And I remembered showing up you know, at this event that I was hosting and my heart was overflowing with love for the people in my life. None of them had changed. They were all still just as opinionated, still just as overbearing, you know, meddlesome, loving, and I was actually fully able to embrace and love everybody there. And here's me and my mom side by side. My mom is aged, you know, she's got some dementia. Um, I've aged too, <laughs> but I'm in a normal size body. And, um, and here's me over the last number of years. Um, every one of those dresses fits me. I know it, I go in the closet, I pull it on and I wear them and I have freedom from worrying about what size I'm gonna be from one week to the next. Food is quiet. Um, and just to show it, you know, here's me at another like family event in one of those dresses, unplanned. I was gonna wear something else. It happened to be cold that day. Had to pull out this dress and it fit me. And I'm not worried about that. And I never worried about that. Um, and here are some other side-by-side -side photos of me and my family, just so you could see the transformation, the difference in me. Um, we got older, but you know, they got a healthier person. And again, we're side by side, um, you know, but this is my husband and I last summer, and this was us a number of years ago. Um, and this is, you know, somewhat current. So um, those are the pictures, you know, and I, and so generally what happens is people kind of lean in at this point and they're like, okay, so what'd you do? Really nice. Now I see your pictures. Awesome. Tell me something. Tell me something I don't know. Right. So, um, you know, I, first of all, I'm, I'm fairly certain I was born a compulsive overeater. My early memories are all food related. And what's different um, about my food related memories in comparison to like my husband's who's not a compulsive reader. Um, Cause he shared with me once he said, oh yeah, I um, I too have a lot of, he's like, I have a lot of food memories from being a kid, except his memories are memories of being content of actually receiving satisfaction. And my memories of a child with food is a constant longing for more. So no matter what was ever brought out my eyes were always just beyond my plate. You know, my mother would take out a cake on Friday night and before my slice was cut, I knew my piece wasn't gonna be enough. And I was already thinking, how am I gonna get to the refrigerator to get more? And that's the way I spent most of my growing up years. And I came to Overeaters Anonymous for the first time really looking hoping that you guys were gonna tell me why. Like, why do I have this? What, why, why? And, um, you know, in the chapter, um, there's a solution. I, I, I'm a lover of the big book. And it, in the chapter, it's, it answers this sort of. It says opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic compulsive overeater, in my case, reacts differently than normal people. We are not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, 
little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So my questions about why, it was spiritual immaturity. Because really what I wanted to know was who did this to me? Who can I assign blame to? And what I found you know, out is that, um, yeah, my parents made a lot of mistakes. Okay. And next, right? So have I, right? So I am a mom, I've made countless mistakes. And um, even if they intended to hurt me in some way, which they didn't, I know my family, they, everybody there did the best they could. They loved me. They still love me. But even if it was intentional, even if these people set out to do me harm. So unless I'm going to get in a time machine and undo my past, I can't really spend too much time on the uncovering why. The better question is, what am I going to do about it? Right? That's the real question. What is there to do about it? You know, um, and I'll tell you what doesn't work. Frothy emotional appeal. You know, it talks about frothy emotional appeal in the doctor's opinion, and it says it never suffices. And I've had a lifetime of frothy emotional appeal, where people who loved me sat me down and gave me a good talking to. I had many of those good talkings. My parents did it. I heard, you know, growing up all the time, my dad loved me and he would pull me aside and he'd say, Mel, Melissa, Missy, Miss, come on, you're smart. You're a beautiful girl. You are a smart girl. You're strong. You know, you got a good head on your shoulders. You can do it. You can do it. You know, and they would give me money all the time for every weight loss scheme, every quick fix. They would offer their help, their support. And it never worked. It never worked for me. Um, you know, fast forward to my, um, I even had an experience with my mother-in-law. You know, I was a married woman with young children and my mother-in-law decided she was going to talk to me about my weight and my food problem. And um, it was horrible. It was one of the most horribly painful conversations for both of us, truly for both of us. She sat me down and she explained to me how she lost her mother as a little girl, not to this disease, to something else. And that she grew up without a mom and it was terrible to grow up without a mother, very painful. And then she shared with me how um, my husband, you know, my husband actually lost his dad. He was eight years old, seven or eight years old. And she said it was terrible to watch her children go through that. She experienced it as a child and she experienced it as a young mom. And she was watching me and she's like, Melissa, you're going to do it to my grandchildren. And I mean, this woman was crying when she told me this story, when she sat me down and it must've taken now looking back at it, I think my God, she must've had to summon up all the courage to sit me down to tell me this. I can, I know her. I'm sure she had it rehearsed. She probably had her talking points on a list. Like I know my mother-in-law and it didn't work. Actually what happened was I got, I got mad at her because that's what happens when people appeal from us from fluffy emotions. It doesn't work, you know? Um, 
you know, I, I tried every scheme, everything out there. Um, you know, and in more about alcoholism on page 30, it says our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking, it's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker, every abnormal eater. So when I first came to Overeaters Anonymous, I was given some excellent information. I was actually told about the allergy and it made perfect sense to me because I had a lifetime of experience of trying every scheme. And no scheme that I tried removed the food entirely. It was always a manipulation of the food. But when I came to Overeaters Anonymous for the first time and I was told about the allergy and I was given a food plan back then. And the food plan happened to be a really good plan because it didn't have any of my allergic foods on it. The food plan wasn't the problem. Um, and really my food plan today is pretty close to that plan. But um, I, I thought that um, my problem was just the food. And so what happened was I worshiped abstinence. Abstinence was my, you know, my God. And food plan was the religion I practiced to get, to get a relationship with that God of abstinence. Now, I believe in my heart of entire abstinence today. I don't want anyone to misunderstand, but that's not enough. Because the body and the mind are both sick. And I missed that piece of information. I thought it was just my body. And so what happened to me was I lost weight because the food plan worked. I graduated from college. I was 280 pounds. My life was a mess. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I got a food plan. And I followed the food plan and did nothing else. And I lost the weight like that because I was young <laughs> and I was properly motivated. Um, and the weight flew off and I left, right? The weight flew off, I left. By the way, my motives for losing weight, I had a couple of plans. I wanted to meet a guy, get married, get a good job, be normal, whatever that meant. I just wanted to be a normal person. And I met my husband, we got married. Um, and, but you saw those pictures of me with that baby. So I did not remain normal. If, if the physical norm, normalcy is what I was after, that did not stick. What happened was um, to me, there are two stories to really explain what happened. And um, they're both in more about alcoholism. Page 32 says like the man of 30, it talks about the man of 30. Well, I didn't stay dry for 25 years. For me, I stayed dry for about five. But I fell victim, which practically every alcoholic has. That his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. And so like him, I gathered all my forces, attempted to stop altogether and found I could not. And then there's the story of Fred and everything for him was great. He's on page 41. Physically, I felt fine, no pressing problems or worries. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. 
So here's what happened for me. I went on my honeymoon and it was a beautiful honeymoon, not a cloud in the sky. I thought I had qualified to drink like normal people. And I looked around on this honeymoon. I was in a bathing suit in the pool with a husband. And I looked around and I saw other honeymooning couples having gorgeous frozen tropical drinks, you know, which really is ice cream in a glass, right? It's a big glass of ice cream with a pretty umbrella. It's ice cream. Um, And I had one, you know, and that was it like that because this disease is progressive. And all the while I had been worshiping the God of abstinence, my disease was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I picked up a drink on that honeymoon. And before I knew it, before I knew it, the weight was on. I mean, I gained weight so rapidly. I came home from that honeymoon, nothing fit me, nothing fit me. (laughs) And I thought, all right, well, I've got this thing. I know, I know what to do, but I couldn't do it. That Monday I came back, I couldn't find the God of abstinence and I was without any ability to practice the religion of my food plan. I couldn't do it, you know? And it was humiliating and painful. And I'd say it's actually abusive to a marriage when someone gains that much weight so quickly. You know, I went from a thin bride you know, to an obese person in a few years. I had a job I loved, a husband I loved, I had everything I loved, and in my own hands, I was destroying it. And that's what happens to a woman like me. You know, and I went on for many years like this, up and down and up and down and up and down. And what I found out is I have a really high threshold for pain. And I don't surrender easily. I don't give in easily. You know, I... I, I broke toilet seats. I mean, that's my experience. I broke, you know, chairs. I couldn't sit in the kitchen chairs in my own house. My own chairs that we bought, I couldn't fit in them because the arms were too small for me. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't understand, you know, in Overeaters Anonymous, they started talking about God. The talk was about God and I couldn't get I couldn't understand what they meant when they talked about God um, having any care about me in this problem. Um, But I did know the pain of living that way, the way that I lived. And my understanding is there's no way that a God, that a creator wants anybody to feel that trapped in their own body, the way that I felt trapped, unable to do anything about it. Um, You know, I... I came to OA again, and I have to say that, again, this time, I didn't follow all the directions. You know, I didn't get entirely well. I had some bursts of recovery. There's the picture I showed you on the vacation in the sunglasses. I was doing the OA plan, the easier, softer OA plan. I wanted the OA light plan. I wanted a middle of the road OA plan. And that doesn't work for someone like me. I need, I need the whole deal, a whole plan. You know, I had no idea that I could recover. I had no clue that that was even a possibility. Um, and what happened was 
that vacation picture of me in the sunglasses, do you know what I picked up on that vacation in an abstinent state? The exact same thing I picked up on my honeymoon, which tells me that lack of information has never been my dilemma either because I had the information of my own human experience and it did not inform me. In that moment, I had this strange mental blank spot that this time I would be okay, that this time I could get away with it and I couldn't. And I started regaining weight again. And then the most beautiful thing in the world happened for someone like me. Here's what happened. The food stopped working. I couldn't get I couldn't get quiet in my head on the food. Um, my last binge, I ate until my mouth bled. My, my mouth was bleeding. It hurt so much. And what happened for me, right? You wanna know like, so then what happened? Well, that's in the, in the, in the chapter, there's a solution, it's on page 25. The great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, towards our fellows and towards God's universe. That's what happened for me, is that I have had a deep and effective spiritual experience, nothing less than that. And God, you know, um, is the central fact of my life today. It's the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives or hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which could never do by ourselves. You know, it further goes on to say that we've passed into the region for which there's no return through human aid. And you have two choices when you've reached that spot. One, go to the bitter end. Keep on going. Keep on eating. Keep on drinking. Keep on doing it. Blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other is to accept spiritual help. So my two choices that I'm left with, there's no OA light. So forget that one. The middle of the road solution doesn't exist. I'm standing outside the door and there's two doors. One, I can eat, but I better be prepared to eat so much that I blot out living. That's what it says. The intolerable situation. I have to eat so much that I'm walking like a human coma, you know, barely alive, barely experiencing living. And the other one is to accept spiritual Right. And basically, what does it mean to accept spiritual help? It means to take everything I thought I knew about God, about food, about weight loss, about my family, about society, about everything and scrap it and be open to have something entirely new. I could not fit away into the structure of my super busy life and think that I was gonna get well. I had to admit my life wasn't working. It wasn't working. It did not work. And I had to be willing to allow God to build a new life with me. You know, 
Um, what do I do? What did I do? I did the steps one after the other intensively and without debating and without delaying. You know, for me, step one is more than just an admission that I've got a problem with food. It's more than just an admission of I've got an allergy. Yes, I have an allergy. I absolutely have an allergy. But step one means that I embrace a very specific concept that I also find in the doctor's opinion. Not just the allergy is there. It comes at the end of the explanation about the allergy. It says this phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people, people like me, and sets them apart as a distinct entity, right? And that distinction can never be eradicated, cannot be undone. What I usually love to suggest to people is you take a piece of paper and you fold it in half. And on one side of the page are people like me. And I'll tell you, I'm going to read you a list real quick. I know I've got like a minute and a half left of what makes me distinct. Well, the doctor's opinion tells me I can be competent and hopeless. So I might've looked like I was quite competent, two kids, a job, a husband, a mortgage, and I was hopeless. Another way that makes me distinct is working with others, doing this is how I get well and stay well not getting thin and going off and disappearing. You wanna recover and you wanna stay recovered, you're gonna get in the water and help others recover as well. I'm someone who's exhausted every other method. That's what makes me distinct. It means if you've tried everything else, awesome, you're in the right spot. It's a requirement, try everything else. Next thing that makes me distinct is my body is not normal. I have an abnormal body. Another thing that makes me distinct is I have to constantly think of others. I have to constantly think, I want to stress that, constantly think of others, not me, not my selfishness, but other people. You know, the other thing is I've got to have really tight parameters around my food. I don't eat in spontaneous ways. I don't make snap decisions about my eating regardless of where I am doesn't matter where I'm, where I'm at. My food always remains constant. I have to live by spiritual principles. I heard my timer went off, but I'm just going to quickly run through it. I have to have a code. I have a code in this program, a way of living. My code is love and it's tolerance. It's not fairness. It's not unfairness. It's not justice. It's not right versus wrong. We're told our code. I have to be entirely honest. We're taught about honesty in this program if I want to live well and happily. I also, what makes me distinct is I can't live within the boundaries of my own knowledge. Remember, that's why I went on a vacation and I did the same thing again. Knowledge isn't enough for someone like me. I need something bigger than knowledge. You know, what else makes me distinct is I experience the phenomenon of craving because I have a severe allergy. I have something that other people don't have. They overeat on vacations and they get right back on because they don't trigger this other thing. And then here's the scary thing. I've got a mind that tells me I don't have this problem. You're not distinct, you're normal. Scrap the list, throw it out. But remember that we're people who've had an experience with the miraculous. And if I take that paper and I fold it in half, 
that crease can't be uncreased. The bell can't be unrung, right? What makes me distinct is a permanent factor. And um, it's my pleasure to talk with you today. And with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Talissa. That was wonderful. I'm so grateful that I'm not alone. <laughs>